Are you looking for a job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help our job board. Just head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Grand Valley State University in Allendale, Michigan is looking for an assistant professor of graphic design and user experience. Blink UX is looking for a head of research in San Francisco or San Diego. And Hart is looking for two roles, a digital copywriter and a digital designer. These roles can be based in either Columbus, Ohio or Toledo, Ohio. Companies, it's February. It's Black History Month. Is it a time to stop making excuses on your diversity and inclusion efforts? For just $99, you can post your job listing with us where it will be on our job board for 30 days. And we'll also spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. We also offer annual job board subscriptions. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, we have a new accessibility sponsor for the podcast, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Make sure y'all thank Brevity and Wit for sponsoring us because now we can provide full transcripts for future episodes, starting with today's episode. Now I also want to remind you of a few other things that are going on this month. First up, of course, is 28 Days of the Web. It is in full swing this year. If you haven't already, head on over to 28daysoftheweb.com to follow along for this year or to catch up on past honorees. Next up, Recognize is still accepting essay submissions for Volume 3. This year's theme is Reboot, and the deadline for submissions is May 2nd at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Make sure to read over the rules and guidelines, and when you're ready to submit, head over to recognize.design. And finally, speaking of Recognize, there's a brand new limited edition merch drop of Recognize gear over at Mon Cherry. Go to mon-cherry.com and grab a recognized sticker, an embroidered hoodie, or a face mask. The drop just went on sale on February 15th. It ends on February 28th, which also happens to be our eight-year anniversary. Look at that. All right, now let's get on to the interview. This week, I am talking with Marcus Robinson, the Vice President of Innovation and Creative at Interactive One. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Marcus Robinson. I am head of product for 
Interactive One. Interactive One is the interactive division of Urban One. It used to be called Radio One. There are two television stations, so that's Clio TV and TV One. And we also own about 50 radio stations across 15 different markets. And so I lead all interactive technology, design for all of those brands. And so we have websites like uh, bossup.com, Hello Beautiful. We have a bunch of notable sites that some of your audience members may be familiar with. Wow. I didn't know that. I knew about the radio and the television portion. I didn't think about the web portion. That's a lot. We actually, yeah, we have, so the national side alone, we have News One, we have the Black America Web, you have Bossa, Madden Noir, Hello Beautiful. There's a lot of just national sites. And so in addition to that, we have a bunch of local radio station websites that we maintain as well. And we also own Black Planet, which was, yeah, I'm sure you're very familiar with uh, yeah. the, uh, the original social network before Facebook, before any of those other ones, We that was Black Planet. Wow. So how many, I'm trying to think, that's a lot to oversee. <laughs> how many people are you overseeing? Yeah. So I have about, underneath me, I have about four direct reports and then they have about a total of about 15 direct reports underneath them. So it's a, a decent sized group. All in all, the interactive division is about 100 people. Wow. What is an average day like for you? Yeah. So, I mean, I wear a lot of different hats. Typically, I, I do my one-on-ones with my direct reports every Monday. But but a normal day would be, the first thing I do is I, I jump into the data. So I want to see how well business is done the, the day before. Obviously, I'll look, up, look at that over some trends. And then typically from there, it's either launching some new initiative or working with the developers to make sure that we're hitting all of our goals when it comes to any features that we're launching. Also, just kind of making sure that we are collecting as much data as we possibly can so we can be actionable and predictive in some of the work that we're doing. So it's a a lot of different hats, but a typical day usually starts with me diving into data, then it's moving on to meetings, and then it's just having a couple of different stand-ups to make sure that the stuff is getting done. And like, I guess with the pandemic, that sort of has changed maybe the frequency or the method in which you're checking up with people. But has that been a big effect on your work so far? The best part about having daily or you know weekly stand-ups is nothing really has changed except for the medium, right? And so instead of meeting in my office every day, we're meeting over Slack. So for the most part, it's been fairly simple. I definitely miss FaceTime with my team. I definitely miss you know being able to for them to just be able to pop into the office or me pop over into their area and just say hi. From the work perspective, everything seems to be kind of business as usual. Okay. And you've been there now for like almost 10 years, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, in technology years, that's like 40, right? And so, yes, yes, it has been, <laughs> <laughs> it's been 10 years and I've I jumped from position to position, kind of worked my way up to where I am now. Yeah. Yeah. How has this position changed your life? A couple of different ways. So one, I think it's expanded my understanding of all facets of technology. Like for instance, I used to just be a developer and that's, you know, a developer kind of saw things just by way of the code. Now I find myself seeing everything differently, right? So instead of just interacting with code, I'm interacting with people, but from the perspective of software. And so, you know, one of the things I think it uh, it has helped me develop is empathy. You know, when people ask me, like, what is the most important skill set or what is the superpower of a great product worker? 
a product person has to have empathy. And so I think what I've, what this job and my work has had me, helped me to develop is my ability to be empathetic for the people in which we serve. But also I can see that trickling into kind of my personal life as well. I think I'm a lot more empathetic just dealing with what I have to deal with at work every single day. I, I think that's probably the biggest thing I'm taking away from my job every day. And now one thing that you mentioned to me, this is prior to recording, is just how much this position has really kind of opened your eyes to product. Can you talk about that? So I was a computer science major. And so prior to that, like I thought I I was destined to be just a great developer. And I never heard of product, right? Product was foreign to me. I, I knew design, right? I knew the difference between UI and UX, but I had no clue what a product person did. And so uh, after working for Interactive One as a developer, it kind of exposed me to this kind of intersection between data, design, technology, and just the development side. So, right. And so I found myself like not being a a good developer, a good designer, but I found that my best came out when all of these things were kind of touching one another. And so, yeah, it definitely opened my eyes to one, what product was, but two, like this skill set that was necessary to be successful in that, in this role. What would you say is like the hardest part about what you do? I think the hardest part is when your business objective is not in exact alignment with the development side or the audience is better way of saying it, the audience side of the equation, right? So for instance, we are in the business of making money. It's just, you know, completely transparent. We are a publicly traded company and we have a responsibility to our shareholders. So at the same time, we have to balance creating an experience that is in support of our users, that does not overwhelm our users with this other side of the equation of making money, right? And so sometimes they jive perfectly. I would say most times they jive perfectly. But there are some times where you have to make some tough decisions over, are we, are, are we okay to forego some revenue if it means a bad user experience to our users, right? And so having to make those decisions and having to make sure that all of these key stakeholders have buy-in into the decision can sometimes be challenging. And I would imagine, you know, with so many different properties that you're also working across, making sure that those are all, I don't know, maybe I guess talking in a similar tone and voice, I would imagine. I mean, anything from Hello Beautiful to Black Planet to Bossip to radio to television, like that's multiple touch points for the brand, you know? Absolutely. And, that, and you know, you bring up another point. Yes. So the other thing that kind of that I would say is a little difficult about the position is like knowing that one we're managing a lot of different assets. And one thing that you'll learn, well, you, one thing that I've learned is, you know, obviously you cannot speak to everybody in the same way. The tone and, and the feel and everything else per site is different and unique to that site. But there's, just to let you know, we have, you know, it, it'll shock you. We have one theme, one WordPress theme that powers 70 different sites, right? And so that- in Wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on. One <laughs> WordPress theme- is powering, is it like a multi-user setup or like, what does that look like? Yeah. So we do have like, so it's a WordPress multi-user environment, but they all have one theme and this one theme, we built it so that you could change the look, the feel, the layout, you know, you could drag and drop widgets. So because a news site is completely different than an entertainment site, 
but it's all powered by one theme and you could just customize it based on the needs of that specific brand, right? So here's the good news. That makes it really easy to maintain, right? If I push one bit of code, it will go across all 70 of our properties. So I don't have to maintain, you know, is it here? Is it here? Is it here? It's one place, one code, but it is challenging because, you know, everything you build, you have to say, okay, what is the effect for this widget on Hello Beautiful? How does this look on Bossom? And so it's, it's challenging, but it also uh, makes it very easy on our developers to roll out new features that will be across all of our sites. Wow. <laughs> That's something. I mean, I think of like other media companies that I've like worked with or interviewed people from there and they use, you know, usually something custom built. I guess maybe the needs of what they have may have outgrown something that's more, I don't know if you would call WordPress on the shelf, but it kind of is a, a simple thing anyone can download and use for free. It's amazing that you've been able to extend it out so far, and it's still a viable tool to use in that way. That's something. Yeah, absolutely. It's WordPress. It's open source. So there's just a ton of people who are contributing to it. And there's always a great plugin or a great feature or great this, that, and the third. So that's what makes it easy. But also that developer community, that that WordPress developer community is so tight-knit, they they work together so well that like even scale, we do, you know, 30 million UVs or something like that. And to do that on a simple WordPress theme, I think it just kind of is the testament to like a great developer community because it's easy to grab somebody who is a WordPress expert because... WordPress is probably the largest CMS platform in the world. So scaling is pretty simple. Yeah, like I think WordPress, maybe as of us recording this powers, I think at least a third of the web. I remember when it was only powering a quarter of the web. Yes. That's yeah, huge. It has grown. Yeah. I mean, I think that's open source at its best, right? I think WordPress and Linux are, are the are the champions of open source, but I think it's a testament to what happens when community works together to achieve something. Yeah. And so speaking of that, I kind of want to shift here a little bit because you and I go way back and we'll get into that. But I know that you grew up in Florida. Is that right? That's correct. I was born and raised in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and I uh, went to Florida and m University in Tallahassee, uh, an HBCU there in Tallahassee. OK, we'll get to, to FAMU. But tell me like what it was like for you growing up. Were you exposed to a lot of like technology as a kid? Yeah, I think, you know, I. I have the same story as most of us. You know, I got introduced to technology through video games. I have a brother who's an entrepreneur who is 12 years older than me, which was awesome because uh, he was in college while I was in basically grade school. And he brought home a Commodore 64 for school. And at that point, it was it changed my life forever. And he happened to go to a technical college as well. So he used to come home with all this, you know, these new video games and those new video games made it attractive to me, for me to understand, okay, how do, how do I make my own video games? And then I learned how to code. I learned how to code in basic and learn, you know, how to do some things from the DOS prompt, which I, I don't even, you know, I don't even know if DOS is around. I'm a Mac user now, but, but learned a lot of that stuff because I just happened to have my older brother who was a technology guy. And, you know, it, it opened my eyes to a, a world of possibilities, especially when I jumped online and, got into those BBSs, it was a game changer for me. Yeah, people sleep on, I think they sleep on basic and just how easily accessible it was, even if you weren't like a capital P programmer, which 
I think about that now. Com- I think about well that then I should say compared to now how easy it is to sort of get into coding. Like when yeah. like you and I are like roughly like right around the same age, and so like when I was I don't know maybe about six or seven, probably a little bit younger than that. Like my brother, who's about four years older than me, he had a VTech Laser Fifty computer. This thing was oh, about yeah. the size of maybe like a like now, like maybe a 60% mechanical keyboard. And it had, you know, your full QWERTY keys, but it had a one line, like dot matrix screen. And that's what you used (laughs) to do all of your, all of your, your data entry. But like, when you got the computer, it didn't come with anything. It didn't come with games. It came with a manual to teach you how to program in basic. Even to load a game, I don't know if, you know, I still remember the command to load a game, but it wasn't as simple as you put the disc in the disk drive and double click the icon and yeah, the just no. started working, right? <laughs> it, you had to almost know how to program just to get your application to start. Yeah. I mean, even then, like I, I mean, uh, we were probably using, I mean, we were using those five and a quarter floppy disk. And I remember having to put those in like the Apple IIe at school and type in run or type in catalog if there's other stuff on the disk besides the program that you want to run. And you had to have a little bit of of programming knowledge to kind of even run the program. It wasn't just as simple as like tapping an icon. You know what I mean? Like it's so much, much simpler now. But just thinking of like the education of teaching yourself how to program like that was the thing. There were no real games that sort of taught you this stuff. They just gave you the book like, here's basic. Start learning. This know. is this is a subroutine. You know, like you taught you the the print hello world command and all that sort of stuff. And you kind of expanded out from there. Like they gave you the basics and you kind of went from there, which is I think a lot different than how it is now. Uh, I think if you're learning how to code now, there's so many like boot camps and schools and they try to teach you with games and it's not just as simple as sitting you down in front of the computer. I wouldn't even call it the manual, but like sitting you down with whatever the language is that you need to learn. And that's how you teach yourself essentially. That's exactly right. And in in addition to that, you know, there's most computers back then we didn't have internet. So it wasn't as simple as a Google search away or there wasn't a Google. Yeah. Uh, And there was no YouTube videos that could walk you step by step through how to do certain things. It was literally exactly what you just articulated. It was a book and you went through that book and you tried and it worked sometimes. It didn't work and you would be up all night just trying to figure it out. Yeah. And it definitely gives you a, I don't know, a sense of, it definitely makes you kind of tough. It makes you kind of figure out how to problem solve, I would say. Oh yeah. It definitely teaches how to problem solve because you have to sort of go through those motions to figure out what it is that you have to to do. Like I'll, you know, even to extend it a little bit further into the the future from the 80s, I'll say like when HTML really came about and there was the web and the internet, there were no courses teaching you how to build a website. You had to reverse engineer by looking at the source code and like figuring it out in notepad and then running that in the browser and seeing if that worked. And if it didn't work, try to figure out why it didn't work because it didn't give you an error command. It didn't yep. spit anything out in the console to let you say, oh, this is what you did wrong. This is, you know, so there is, there's just a lot of trial and error and, and you having to really figure it out. You just have to figure it out. Absolutely. So I was even thinking like uh, you mentioned notepad, like even the, the IDEs of the, the text editors nowadays are so much more advanced than we had back, you know, I, I was using notepad. So even like if, if you had an errant 
you didn't close your div tag. You just had to figure it out. You know, what yeah. I mean? you didn't have a way of collapsing the code to figure out exactly what's missing. You just had to go line by line. It was it was painful, but it also it was almost like you came out stronger. You know, what I mean? you come out a lot stronger than I think probably than we had to be at that point. <laughs> Look, I'll completely date myself here. So I I was using Notepad all the way up until probably freshman year of college. So like 1999, because what else was there? I think there was Macromedia Dreamweaver, but even that, I think for a, for a high school, like I was in high school, like there was really no way to access that unless we had it at school, which we didn't. You could get on like Kazaa or LimeWire and download it or something. But I was using that up until I got to Morehouse. And then I was using, I, I discovered something from like a computer science student called Metapad. Which is oh, like okay. Notepad, but they added some programming-like features, like line numbers. Like, oh. that changed the game for me when I saw that this had line numbers and I could actually sort of debug what was going on. Like, it gave you, so- like it gave you something. Yep. Notepad gave you nothing. It, it gave you a blank That's screen it. and a cursor. That's, That's right. it. It didn't um, even have color. Yeah, it didn't it even have color. Did. And like Metapad was kind of purple and like, like they put a little bit of design to it. And I was like, okay, this is something that I can use that's different from Notepad. Cause like it actually did some kind of a, not necessarily like code coloring, but it would do indentations. You could put okay. like tabs in and stuff like that. It was just a lot easier than Notepad because Notepad was basically a pad to take notes on. Metapad was something you could actually use for development, you know, and if you didn't have something more robust of an IDE like Dreamweaver or what else was big back then, Go Live or uh, or front page or front page, yeah, front page yeah. was interesting. Yeah. So when did you know that like tech was it for you? Like I, you kind of mentioned learning basic and stuff like that, but when did you know this is what you really wanted to do? You know what? So it's so interesting. I, so I went to, when I went to school, I actually, uh, when I went to college, I actually majored in physical therapy. So I, I ended up quitting because, you know, I thought physical therapy meant that I was going to work with athletes. And then oh. you find out you don't work with athletes. You you know, you work in, in the geriatric ward or something like that. Right. And, it just didn't <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, and no disrespect to, you know, it just wasn't the, what I thought it was. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I, and I've always just been a tinkerer, you know what I mean? I've always been just the type of person that would take a calculator apart and want to understand the different intricate circuits in it. And so it was actually in school when I was, I called my mom one day and I was just like, Ma, you know, I, I don't think this this physical therapy thing is my fit. I don't know if it's my right for me. I, I know I wanted to be doing something in medicine, but I don't know if this physical therapy. And she just said to me, she said, you know, you've always just been so into computers. Why don't you consider a computer? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. You know what I mean? It just a light bulb went off in my head and she was like, do what you just li- love to do. And, and, you know, the money will come. Don't worry about medicine. Don't worry about physical therapy. Just do what you want to do. And so I think the next day I went into my advisor's office, changed my major, and I've just been I've just been there ever since. Wow. I remember when I started out at Morehouse, I wanted to make websites because I had started making websites in high school. And I started in computer science, computer engineering, because I kind of that and wanting to be like Dwayne Wayne, I was like, okay, oh. this is kind of where I need to go in order to 
sort of make this happen. And after that first semester, my advisor was really like, if you want to make websites, like you should change your major because that's not what we do here. Like the internet is just a fad. Nobody's going to be online. Like that's not a thing, you know? Again, this is 1999 when the internet really was kind of in its very basic stages. And he was just like, yeah, if you want to make websites, like you're not going to be able to do that as a computer science major. And so I switched. It's amazing now how the internet is everywhere. It is bad. You know, compared to back then. But yeah, no, it's, it's interesting that you started out in one thing and then you just kind of went back to your roots in a way. Like you were always doing this tinkering and playing around with technology in some sort of way. And then that's where you ended up going into. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, it was like following. It's kind of cliche to follow your passions. But uh, yeah, I was just super passionate about it. My mom could see it, you know, back, and then, you know, my mom's from the country. So everything is computers to her. You know what I mean? Do computers. Yeah. You know how to fix You know how to fix them. Do computers. <laughs> Do computers. That's, that's, uh, and so she didn't, you know, know anything about the difference between types of, you know, any of that stuff. She just knew I had this thing and this love for this tech for technology and yeah. i'm so glad i made that decision it's the best decision i ever made so what was the program like fam i don't know if it's still the same but we had two options it was uh it was computer information systems they had the business and science options and so i happened to be a, a business option major which means not only did you have to take the computer programming you know c plus plus java you had to do advanced database. So you had to learn SQL and there wasn't any pretty GUI interfaces that you had to code pure SQL. And so you learn SQL. But in addition to all of those courses as well, you had to do your business. So you had to take accounting, economics, and all of those as well. And we, you know, I had, looking back on it, um, had a great bunch of teachers. I still talk to Dr. Edwards, who is the chair of the CIS program. Just like there's such like those folks, not only did they have PhDs, but a lot of them just had a whole lot of like really strong working knowledge. And so they, they kind of schooled us not only to, here's how you code, right? Here's, here's the basics of coding. I think they prepared us on what it meant to actually be successful in the workforce. One of the most important classes, I think every person in the computer science department takes is professional development, which is kind of silly, but, it, but looking back on it, it's so important. But it's just everything on how to present yourself in an interview to to how to conduct yourself in a boardroom meeting. What I would say is the program at FAM was a well-rounded program. It definitely was technical enough for you to hang with the best of them, but they also did not forget about some of those other skills that you would need to be successful in corporate America. Nice. And the reason that I ask that is, you know, as you know, in your kind of stature right now, interactive one, but just also because of the state of the industry, Companies are looking at HBCUs a lot to try to find people that are going to diversify their workforce. And, you know, one sort of, I wouldn't say a a criticism, but certainly one kind of reality is that, you know, the curricula that are at HBCUs for certain, you know, majors, whether it's design, whether it's tech, are not the same as, say, their PWI counterparts. But it sounds like, you know, for you, it really sort of helped out in terms of giving you a more well-rounded education. Absolutely. Yeah. I, so I was reading this article about the, the Google, some folks at Google getting let go or, or yeah, getting let go and having some really strong things to say about what Google's corporate said about the HBCU education. And he, here's my experience. So I happened to go to FAMU and there's a PWI literally right across the railroad tracks, Florida State University. And I happened to work at my job during college was 
at the computer help desk. And the coolest part about that job was I was the only person that worked at, that was from FAMU that worked at the Florida State University. I worked at the FSU's computer help desk. And so I was the only person from FAMU. And the large majority of those folks there were computer science majors at Florida State. And so we had the opportunity to always kind of talk and, and like compare notes. And there were times where some students would walk into the help desk and I would help them. These are computer science students walk into our help desk and I would help them with their computer science work. And so I would say that we were absolutely on par and as strong as, if not stronger, than some of the PWIs that I've had, you know, some uh, students from the PWIs that I had the opportunity to work with. Now, some of these guys have gone on to work for Google and gone on to work for some notable tech startup companies, but our education was on par with the same work that they were doing. Oh, that's pretty cool. So when you graduated from FAM and you're working at, at Florida State, like, take me back to that time. Like, what were you thinking? Were you like, this is what I want to do? Or did you have aspirations of doing bigger things back then? When I worked for Florida State, my biggest thought was like, I was thinking that I wanted a free education and I wanted a master's degree. That was my thought. Like I wanted to get an MBA. And if I worked for Florida State at the time, I'm not sure if it's the same way, but if I worked for them, I would get free education. They would pay for my education if I was a full-time employee. So that was kind of my thought process in taking the position there. As I started working there, I found that one, you know, I, I learned a lot. I happened to get hooked up with some really great mentors, people that I would say helped mold me and shape me into the person I am today. So I happened to be working alongside of some amazing mentors. But in addition to that, the entrepreneurial bug kind of hit me. And so that's kind of you know, I don't know if you want to go there now with the Black Web 2.0 days, all of that kind of stuff happened while I was working at Florida State. But like the biggest thing for me was I, I came out of Florida State, not thinking that this was going to be my forever place, but it was more of a place that was one, going to give me a free education, but two, also just happened to connect me to two mentors who really helped mold me to the person I am today. Actually, yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, I don't know if okay. a lot of people know this or remember this, but you were one of the co-founders of a pretty influential black tech website called Black Web 2.0. It was you and Angela Benton, which people I'm sure have heard her name because of the New Me Accelerator. She's currently CEO at Streamlytics, I think is her new company. How did you two end up meeting each other and starting the site? You know, it's, it's so funny. It was it was through, I don't know if you remember Lindy Johnson. It was through Lindy Johnson. Yes, I remember Lynn. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I haven't seen Lynn in so, God, the, not the last time I was in I'm trying to remember when the last time I saw Lynn. It's been a minute, but no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, like, absolutely. So, like, Lynn back in those days, and probably still is to this day, she was like the great tech connector. You yeah. know what I mean? And yeah. so, so, back in those days, it was all about the RSS feed. You know what I mean? So I happened to be subscribed to all of these wonderful blogs. Lynn had hers. There was just so many different Black tech entrepreneurs, but folks who just talked about interesting technology ideals. And so I happened to be connected to Lynn's blog, and I was reading on Lynn's blog. And then Angela and I just happened to be, I think, commenting on the same post. And I thought she just had some really interesting ideas. So I asked Lynn, I believe, to introduce me to Angela and we started talking. She happened to be working on Black Web 2.0 already. So she was already working on Black Web 2.0. Her background was more design at the time. I was more technical at the time. And so I was like, yo, can we just do this together? You know what I mean? As opposed to me 
doing my own thing, how about I, I leverage my technical background, your creative background, our understanding of how technology works and what we want to see in the black tech space. And we just said, let's do Black Web 2.0. And next thing you know, Black Web 2.0 started to grow. Cert, we were just getting folks who were just searching, subscribing to our newsletter. We kept growing and growing and growing. It was, and all we did was talk about what we saw and what we wanted to see. That was literally it. We wanted to see this, this world where Black entrepreneurship would grow and Black tech startups were growing fast. And then obviously TechCrunch was starting around that time. And we saw all these wonderful Black tech companies starting and nobody was talking about them. They, they just never got the recognition. And so once we really started being focused on highlighting what we thought were the best and the brightest Black tech entrepreneurs, that's when things really started lifting off for us. For people that are listening, I have to really set the scene here because, I mean, it, it's hard to to underestimate just how explosive a time that was where all that was going on. This is about the years between, I would say, like 2004 to like 2006, something like that. And like, I remember one of the, the big catalysts behind, I think, this resurgence or I wouldn't even say resurgence, but this emergence of a lot of kind of black tech verticals was South by Southwest. And yes, uh, right. South by Southwest was had this interactive. Well, it still has this interactive portion where you know people come and give panels and stuff like that. And I remember there was a panel. I think it was in '05 called "Blogging While Black," and it was it was Lindy Johnson. It was a couple of other folks. I think Jason Tony might have been on that panel. I think Tiffany Brown was on that panel. I don't remember who all else, but a bunch of black web luminaries that people probably don't even really know now but a lot of the conversation in and around that particular panel that they did sort of started to you know have people throughout the internet talk about well yeah where are the black tech people and i mean you had verticals like locker gnome and and others that were talking about tech but it wasn't ever from any sort of a racial perspective but then you also had these provocateurs like lauren feldman <laughs> and this wow, actually this yeah. actually came about I think it was during or right around the time of that 2005 South by Southwest panel but he had this company I don't know if he still has it but it was called 1938 Media and he was doing a bunch of little like short videos cuz like short videos this is pre YouTube for folks that are listening but like there were all these little short videos that he was doing it was also right around the time that uh Jay Smooth was doing a lot of short videos with Ill Doctrine and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. And he had come out with this. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, it's, I can laugh at it now, but he came out with this video. You probably remember this called Tech Nigga. Yeah. He was like, he was like, and Lauren's a white dude. And he's like, yeah, I'm blah, 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 technigga.com. And I made this app to keep track of all my hoes and know where all it was. I mean, super cringeworthy, of course, now in 2021, but even back then, it was like, what the fuck are you doing? I think that lit a fire under so many black folks in like tech, and I would say in design too, but mostly in tech. Like it lit a fire under so many people to like counter that. And like, I remember that also being around the time that Black Web 2.0 was really taking off, not in spite of that, but certainly in that same kind of environment because. You know, you had things like South by Southwest, you had Technorati and, and stuff like that. And it was just an Arctic tundra when you talk about the racial makeup of tech back then. Like, it really was not a lot of Black people 
visibly seen anywhere. And like, this really was like a spark, unfortunately, that caused all of this to happen, you know, or really caused all this to really proliferate. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, looking back on it, it was absolutely somewhat of a blessing. It was, it was obviously not great, um, no. but, it was so, <laughs> a, uh, but it was a blessing because like it, it did, it did introduce like these groups who were just saying, you know what, enough is enough. One, we are here, but you're ignoring us. But two, like just, it was just like this group came together and said, no more of this. Right. And then it was through that that a lot of folks found Black Web 2.0. And I still have people that I keep up with still to this day because of those relationships from Black Web 2.0. It was the catalyst of us or even being talked about more around mainstream media. And it was a place where we all were able to just huddle up and say, uh, we're not standing for this anymore. We're going to show you that we're here. Yeah, absolutely. When you really look back at that whole time, like what do you remember the most? I just remember the internet and these groups being almost like family, for lack of a better term. You know what I mean? Like, that, still that, like, when I said Lindy Johnson, and boom, you instantly was like, oh, Auntie Lynn? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Almost like that vibe, you know? <laughs> or um, Jay Smooth, or Baratunde. Baratunde yeah. and Jack and Jill Politics, I think was the name of their blog yep. at the time. Jer- yep. Baratunde and Cheryl. Cheryl. And even even you brought up Jason Tony and... And, you know, I can go on for days just naming people who, like, they welcomed you almost like you were headed to the Black Family Reunion. Like, you were just going to the, the Black Family Reunion, and you would comment on their blog, and they would respond, and then they would connect with you and bridge gaps and say, okay, I need to introduce you to this other person. You know, they were connectors. They were they were creators as well. And so just, like, what I remember about that, those days was just how open and honest and friendly and family oriented that black tech community was. And I almost kind of envy that, you know what I mean? I I feel like we've all kind of grown apart and grown in different areas and we're doing different things, but it was just like to see what Lynn was doing in her blog. And then for her to introduce me to Angela, I just hope that there's places and people and the same things that can kind of happen through those communities, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I'll tell you what's, you know, this will make you feel old. Like, it's interesting because these people that were like, you know, Jason and Lynn, et cetera, were older than us. Like they were probably like in their, in their thirties and we were in our twenties, like just trying to figure this out. And like, it was like this, yeah, this family feeling, this helping hand of people from the generation before you that wanted to see things through because they kind of helped pave the way. So they want to make it easier for you now we're the Lens and the Jasons. Like we're <laughs> yeah, like true. we're we're that's in true. that position now. And you know, I'll be honest, like even with all the people that I've interviewed for the show and, and stuff like that, that feeling isn't really there anymore. I mean, there's some people that I certainly will talk to and help out with if someone contacts me through the show and they're like if there's times where that happens, but like that feeling is certainly not the same that it was back then. I know exactly what you mean. Some of that is like we didn't have, a, there wasn't Facebook, right? Not the way it is today. There yeah. wasn't Twitter. And so the only place we had to be, the only community we had was through our blogs, right? And now, you know, now that we're just connected with all these disparate, have all these big connections through these larger social networks, it just feels like there's probably conversations happening. We're not as together as we used to be. And I, I do miss that old feeling. Now, I, like I said, people I, I still talk to to this day, like I reached out to Jason not too long ago because when I took over the data team, he was already running BI over at 
I think CBS or somewhere. And I just reached out to him and was like, hey, taking over the data team, um, would love to pick your brain. I'm talking, he hit me right back. Maurice was like, hey, let's jump on the call and I'll I'll talk you through everything you need. So still those relationships that I developed in my Black Web 2.0 days are still ones that I leverage to this day. Yeah. What did Black Web 2.0, like the platform itself and working on it and everything, what did that teach you? So I think it probably first gave me the largest glimpse into what it really means to run a business. Because after a while, you know, Black Web 2.0 became more than a blog. You know what I mean? It, yeah. it became a business. And through that, we were actually, we acquired a couple of sites. Uh, we have big sponsorships from Microsoft and HP at the time. And so it, it started to really blow up, but it, it taught me a lot about what it really meant to be an entrepreneur. And also it taught me how, it, you know, I think when I think about empathy, and I mentioned that earlier in our conversation, like it really talked to me about being empathetic because, you know, you have this balance of like the business responsibilities and trying to make money because we have folks on payroll, but you also had, you had a responsibility to the people that you served, right? And so Black Web 2.0 became a trusted source to thousands and thousands and thousands of people, right? And so it really did teach me how to, that you can be both successful at presenting what you need for the folks that you serve and maintain a good business relationship and grow a decent sized business as well. So that was a huge learning for me. It also taught me how to be really collaborative with Angela, was the first business partner I've ever had. And so, you know, it really taught us how to be collaborative and how to leverage each other's strengths as well. And now speaking of Angela, you know, I know you all, Black Web 2.0 ended up kind of, I think, rebranding into, I think it was B20 or I don't know if that was what it was called. B20. Okay. It ended up kind of evolving into that. And then both of you kind of like went your separate ways. Like I know she started the New Me Accelerator, which now that I'm thinking about it, because I think it turns 10 this year. Like that whole time when she was doing that and it was featured on CNN with the whole Silicon Valley and stuff. Yeah. Damn. That was 10 years ago. We are old. Wow. Um, (laughs) But like she went off to do that. You went to interactive one. Like what caused that decision for you all to kind of both sort of veer away from black web 2.0? Yeah. I think what it, it was a mix of a couple of different things. One, so we started the new media conference at the time with the new me conference at the time. And we were working on just basically putting together a conference. And then between that time, you know, I ended up having a son. I know well, my wife had a son. It was, <laughs> uh, but I ended up having a little boy. So it was like almost like the new me conference was really taking off. And then it started morphing into the accelerator. I ended up getting, I had to get focused on some personal stuff with my new son. And then after a while, the blog is one of those things, if you don't maintain it constantly, especially if you got folks on payroll, it just can go down quickly, right? And so we did the best we could to maintain it, but New Me ended up being a huge initiative in and of itself. I ended up getting a position at Interactive One. We try our best to maintain it as we're working on these two big initiatives. It was just too much. And so we ended up kind of letting it dissolve like you mentioned, we did try to rebrand it. We tried some other things. We ended up just letting it dissolve. And then Angel went on to really be laser focused on the accelerator. And I ended up kind of growing in my position that I want. And I think there's something to be said from knowing when you have to walk away, you know? Yeah. 
so many times with projects, I think particularly if you're black and you make projects and stuff like this, if you don't build in some kind of a, I don't know, like escape hatch or something, you can be trapped into, well, I wouldn't say trapped, but you can end up sort of doing what you're doing until it just kind of runs out of steam, you know, like, as you know, because you worked on it with me for a while, you know, I did the Black Weblog Awards from 2005 to 2011. And there had to be a time where you just say, you know what, this is not, and not in a bad way. I mean, because you look back at all that you've accomplished, you're happy with that. But you also have to, it's sort of like that, what's the song, The Gambler by Kenny Rogers, you have to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. Know when to walk away. <laughs> you got to know when to walk away. Like it gets to a point where you're like, you know what? I can't, I can't sustain this anymore. And you have to kind of let it, I won't say let it die, but you kind of have to let it die. You know, I ended up selling the Black Web Blog Awards and it went on for several years after me, you know, but I remember even in the, like I was doing my studio and people knew me from the Black Web Blog Awards. And they kept asking like, well, what happened to it? And I'm like, I, I sold it. Like I did it for a while and then it, became a bit untenable and I let it go. Like you have to know when to let it go. When, I guess, how did you feel? Like, what were your feelings around that? Like, I know the reality of the situation, but how did it make you feel knowing that you had to walk away from it? You know, at the time it was really disappointing. Like, you know, it was a community. It felt like it was just one of those things. It was our baby. You know what I mean? It was something that we wanted to see grow and develop. So it was definitely a, a rough time. But I also think like at the end of the day, like Angela and I both kind of stayed true to the mission, right? Ultimately, we wanted to be a place where Black entrepreneurship, Black media, Black tech was recognized, was you know accomplished. We just wanted to be a place where folks could talk about it. And I think Angela stayed true to that vision when she created New Me. And I somewhat stayed true to that vision as I you know went over to work at Interactive One as well. So I, I think it was sad times. But to your point, I think there's got to be a time where you feel like you, the, something has run its course uh, and it has to be okay to uh, just kind of to let it go. Uh, yeah. and, I, and I felt like we had both got to the point where it was just time to move on. Yeah. And also, you know, you also have to know that with the work that you've done, like it's, it has been the direct inspiration of other platforms. Now, like if no one else is saying, I'll say it, there would be no Blavity without Black Web 2.0. I don't think so. I see a direct line between that, between Black Web 2.0 and Blavity, just in terms of the scope and the audience and how it's taken off. So, like, you all are trailblazers in that way. You help to kind of, you know, set the trend. Yeah. And I would say, you know, there is no Black Web 2.0 without, you know, Baratunde and Jack and Joe Politics, Lindy Johnson. There's, there's just so many people who played a part in Black Web 2.0. That there's no doubt that it, we wouldn't exist if it wasn't for them. So it, I definitely think it's got to be each of us kind of reaching up and helping each other uh, and inspiring each other. It's awesome that we could have just helped out in a little bit, right? What is tech like for you now at this stage in your career? To be honest, it's one of the most exciting. It, it's just, just crazy exciting, uh, more exciting than I think it's ever been. These new technologies, if we were to talk in 2007, about like artificial intelligence, that would have never been a, a topic of conversation, right? right. And so and how easy it is to touch it, how easy it is to get started on it. Uh, we talked about how in the beginning when you had to put in a lot of work just to get your program to start. Now to be able to tap into 
some of these artificial intelligence libraries makes things so much easier. I think this is some of the most excited I've been around technology. And man, just to be in college around this time would be amazing because you have a bunch of time on your hands, you know, some of your best ideas. And now the technology is, you can reach it now and it doesn't cost you a billion dollars to host a server nowadays. So I'm, I'm pretty excited. I'm really bullish on technology. And I just think it's a not only great field to be in, but it's just, it's one of those things that it's always changing and there's never a dull moment. If you could like go back and talk to like young Marcus, like fresh out of high school, I wouldn't even say fresh out of high school, we'll say fresh out of FAMU. If you could go back and talk to Marcus from back then, what advice would you give him? I think the biggest advice I would give is to that you're, you're not too young to start anything. You know what I mean? Like, you know, back in those days, my thought was, oh, I can't start a business. You have to be older and you have to be more experienced. You have to have had worked in corporate America first. And so like my mentality was like, the only way I'll be able to be a great entrepreneur or a great business owner is if I learn how to do it from somewhere else, right? I have to learn how to do it in corporate America. Then I take what I've learned in corporate America to create my own company. I would have told myself like, no, that is not the case. That is not true. Little did we know that a kid who walk into a boardroom with flip-flops and a hoodie creates something as big as Facebook, right? You do not have to walk the corporate walk to be a great entrepreneur. And I would tell the young me to do it, be focused on it, and that you don't need any validation or any co-sign to do it. You can do it on your own. Who are some of the people that influence you now? I still find influence from some of my previous mentors. You know, they are different fields. Law enforcement is one mentor. Another one is in education. You know, I still get a lot of inspiration to see, like, they're the original puffies to me. Can't stop, won't stop. You know what I mean? (laughs) Still to this day, like, they are just still grinding and, and still being entrepreneurs and still creating and they are, you know, uh, older is what I would say. I would never call them anything other than older. Um, so they're definitely inspirations. But I'm, I'm also just in, inspired by, I'm a huge fan of Jeff Bezos. You know, just like that kind of mentality around the ability to, to create nothing from something. I mean, something from nothing, but also like to do it your own way. So definitely inspired by that. And, and still just inspired by any tech entrepreneurs. And let me also just quickly shout out my brother's huge inspiration. My brother is a, created his own startup and sold it. He's just a great inspiration, great entrepreneur, and a great mentor that I can actually pick up the phone and call uh, on any given day and, and get some really strong advice from somebody who's been around the block a few times. Where do you think your life would have gone if you didn't get into tech? It'll probably be in one of two places, either in education or ministry. <laughs> Those are the two places that instantly hit me when you asked me that question. I would, you know, I come from a long line of uh, educators. My mom was a teacher. My dad works for the school system. My grandmother started a school. Like these are, so I definitely would have, and I still, you know, I even taught a little bit in college. So if I didn't get bit by the technology bug, I might be a teacher or like I said, ministry. I was a church kid, loved the church. And so I could definitely see myself being a minister as well. <laughs> And now you've got two kids now, right? No, three, actually. Three? See? Oh, my God. See, I remember when you had the first one. I know you had three. (laughs) Yes. Do your kids want to follow in your footsteps? You know, I actually just had the conversation with my my oldest son about it. Technology was so new and such a 
amazing thing at the time that you you can't help but be bit by it. But now they're surrounded by Nintendo Switches and all this other <laughs> stuff. So yeah, so when we talk about technology, he's interested, but it's so second nature to them. They they don't see it necessarily as opportunity yet. So right now, if you ask him, he'll probably tell you he wants to be a fireman. But I can see it. I can see that curiosity around technology. And I, I got a feeling just like me, he's going to get bit too. Yeah. I mean, now, I mean, it's it's interesting how much kids now are, I wouldn't even call them really digital natives. Like that even feels like an archaic term to say it. Like they are a product of this time. Like they know about TikTok and they know about, you know, all these other apps and things like this. Like it's such a an intrinsic part of what they do, you know, probably exacerbated now by the pandemic. But even prior to that, technology is such a part of everything that they have to do and everything that they work on that it's it's probably difficult for them to even think. I wouldn't even say think of a time before technology because they're they're kids. But like, I mean, I type my papers in high school on a typewriter. Like, yeah, <laughs> I didn't have, I didn't, have I didn't really have access to. I mean, unless I went to school, I could type on the computer. But at home, it was like. I was pulling out the brother and, <laughs> and right. typing these papers up, you know, and it's it's wild, you know, with, with us at our age, like we can think of a time prior to this big proliferation of tech and, and everything, you know, so it's yeah. I think we're like the last generation that really has that perspective because everyone after us, they're steeped in it. They're steeped in tech. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's so true. I remember when my daughter, she's the youngest, uh, got a hold of my laptop. Uh, she couldn't get it to work because she was so busy just trying to, she was swiping the screen, right? She's never, oh, she's a keyboard before this key, what is this keyboard thing? So it just, it just uh, goes to show how, it, you know, it's just innate in these uh, young kids. And I just, it's going to be interesting to see what the future, what their generation is going to do with um, technology. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially now with, you know, the stuff, kind of stuff you mentioned before with like machine learning and AI and all this sort of stuff, like it's going to be amazing to see what this current generation really comes up with in the next like 20, 30 years. Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you want your legacy to be? I definitely want my legacy to be one. Obviously, I want to be a outstanding father to my kids. So that's very important. I think it's it's important to pass down some of the, the traditions and things that I've learned from them from my parents and from my grandparents to my kids. So I think I have a responsibility to be a great father. But I also believe like I've had so many great mentors. I've had so many great folks who have helped me in my personal development, but also in my career development. And I I feel like I have a responsibility to do the same for others as well. So I would love for my, my legacy to be that there was never a person that Marcus did not help. He taught me what it meant to be successful not only as a person, but also as a, a business owner and also as a maybe in corporate America as well. So if I, if I can leave that, that legacy that he was, he was helpful, he was a great mentor and somebody who helped guide me through this world of mine, I, I would take that in a heartbeat. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work would you like to do or, or do you see yourself doing? Even though I'm leading product, I, there has never been a a day that I have not tinkered with something. I am still, I still code like at, for fun every single day. Like no lie. Like when my kids are asleep, I am on my computer coding some idea, some website, some, <laughs> some new program, or even just like tinkering around with some new Amazon AWS technology just so I can understand it. Right. So I'm always tinkering. I got a feeling in the next 
five years, I think I'll probably have my own company or my own startup in some way, shape, form, or fashion. I am an entrepreneur at heart. Even though I've been working here for 10 years, I felt my guts telling me I'm probably going to be doing something entrepreneurial soon. Okay. Well, you know, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online? They can find me on MarcusRobinson.com. You know, I try my best to do a little bit of blogging there. Social media, it's always Marcus Robinson. That's M-A-R-K-U-S-R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N. And if they want to see any of the cool things that I'm working on at work, just check out interactiveone.com. You can see our portfolio of sites there. And let me also drop this to your users as well. We are in the process of uh, bringing Black Planet back. So I'm leading that team as well. So Black Planet will be launching very soon and would love for your audience to be a part of that as well. Okay. Look, if y'all looking to do some podcasts, holler at me. Let me know. I will do. <laughs> Marcus Robinson, I cannot tell you how long overdue this conversation has been. It has been so good to catch up with you, to see how you have grown as a leader over the past, what, 10 plus years that we've known each other is truly a blessing. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story, you know, dropping all these Santa's like we're in a clubhouse room, dropping gems and stuff. But no, seriously, man, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. No problem. It was truly my pleasure. Anytime. Big, big thanks to Marcus Robinson. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Marcus and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? What do you think about the podcast overall? Don't be a stranger. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path or leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let the world know about the show because it really helps us grow and reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.